0: From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the Medical News section of JAMA. I'm Faiza Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of news content appearing in this month's issues of The Journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the medical news highlights from the November 2018 issues of JAMA. Starting with news features, we've covered a broad collection of topics this month, spanning from penicillin allergy to RNAI therapies. So let's get started. Although about 10% of the U.S. population reports having a penicillin allergy, only less than 1% is truly penallergic. In the November 13th issue, Rita Rubin reports that pen allergy mislabeling can lead to costly and inadequate treatment with alternative antibiotics. Experts suggest debunking penicillin allergies would optimize antibiotic therapy and promote antimicrobial stewardship. And they recommend formal evaluation of pen tolerance in a range of healthcare settings, including primary care and emergency departments. Rita Rubin also interviewed the two co founders of One Tent Health, a free pop up HIV screening initiative that serves high risk neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. Mackenzie Copley and Dr. David Schaefer join me today to talk about One Tent Health. Copley is now
1: working full time for One Tent Health, while Dr. Schaefer is a first year resident in emergency medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Mackenzie I understand that one tent health was your idea. How did you come up with it? That goes all the way back to when I was twenty-one in a senior at school. So I went and got HIV tested back I forget if it was summer semester or fall, but while I was there I was feeling really guilty and just like worried about my status. So I asked while I was there if I could volunteer. A week later I was skipping calc class and out in front of a supermarket doing HIV screening. We were screening about 60 people every day, but we were turning away about 20 uninsured people every day because the company that I was doing screening for was private, for-profit, and they couldn't make money off of the people who didn't have insurance. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was ridiculous. Those people need to get screened more than anyone else. They have limited access to care, different things like that. So I asked management if we could start screening them. They said no, so 21-year-old me just said, you know, kind of screw you guys. I'm going to go start a nonprofit mm-hmm. and screen everyone. So flash forward a while later, it's been a long roller coaster, added David into the fold because I studied economics and physics in school, have like no right to run an HIV screening nonprofit on my own. And I thought, you know, who would be qualified? Who do I trust? And David was in some classes of mine and was a really good friend and was also at UNC med school at the time. I thought he's the perfect person to bring on. So David co-founded the organization with me, 110 Health. We've been at it for about three years and some now, and we're starting to get some really good traction.
0: Listen to our podcast in the November 27th issue to hear more about how this initiative grew from a passion project into a nonprofit organization in 2017, and the organization's partnerships and plans for growth to better serve the DC community. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, winter is coming. And as the seasons vary, so too does cognition in people with and without dementia, reports Jennifer Abbasi. Recent research suggests cognitive performance was best in the late summer to early fall and worst in the late winter to early spring. The study raises hope that patients with Alzheimer's dementia may retain some degree of cognitive plasticity, which could potentially be leveraged for developing new therapies. Additional findings implicate epigenetic mechanisms in mediating seasonal fluctuations in cognition. Future studies will focus on replicating these findings and further investigating the environmental and biological drivers of this phenomenon. See our November 13th issue to read more. Accompanying the November 6th theme issue on hypertension in JAMA, Jennifer Abbasi also reports that preeclampsia and other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can serve as the canary in the coal mine for future cardiovascular disease, such as chronic hypertension. And yet, despite established guidelines, many women with pregnancy complications still aren't counseled on their risks or followed up for cardiovascular warning signs in the years after delivery. Currently, there are no recommended interventions for at-risk women, although studies are now underway to identify modifiable factors that could mediate this risk. It's been a long and winding road for RNA interference therapies. In 1998, researchers made the pivotal discovery in the tiny nematode, Caenorhabditis elegans, that small stretches of double-stranded RNA could selectively silence genes. That discovery won Craig Milo and Andrew Fire a Nobel Prize in 2006. But it wasn't until earlier this year that the first RNAi therapy gained FDA approval for a rare genetic polyneuropathy. Bridget Kuhn reports on the advancements and what's to come in RNAi therapies, noting that targeting RNAi to organs beyond the liver remains a major technical hurdle. See the November 20th issue to read more. Next up, in our running series, Bench to Bedside, which covers recent advances in preclinical biomedical research, Tracy Hampton discusses findings that could pave the way for new treatments of degenerative eye diseases such as retinitis pigmentosa. In a series of experiments published recently in Nature, researchers described a gene transfer approach that stimulated the retina's endogenous regenerative capabilities and partially restored vision in mice with congenital blindness. For more details, visit the November 6th issue of JAMA. Imagine being able to grow a human brain in a dish to study the neurobiological phenomenon, both healthy and pathological, that make us uniquely human. This imagination was ushered into reality in 2013 when researchers described the first in vitro three-dimensional model of the human brain. Since then, the use of these so-called brain organoids to study difficult to model brain diseases has been expanding rapidly. In our second Bench to Bedside article of the month, I interviewed Dr. Madeline Lancaster of the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, England. We discussed her work in developing these mini-brains.
1: Brain organoids are basically kind of simple versions of developing human brain tissue in a dish. They're small, much smaller than an actual human brain but they do have the early morphological features of an actual developing human brain. And so that's what it's really made for, actually, is to look at these early developmental events, how neurons are made within those individual brain regions, but also how those neurons then mature and interact with one another.
0: While these modest blobs of brain tissue, each barely larger than a lentil, don't look like much to the naked eye, They hold great potential for helping us better understand the human brain and the pathophysiology of neurological and psychiatric diseases. Since Lancaster and her colleagues first described their discovery of brain organoids in 2013, researchers have used these surrogate mini-brains to study everything from Zika virus-associated microcephaly and familial Alzheimer's disease to glioblastoma. Listen to our podcast in the November 20th issue to hear more about brain organoids and their utility, future promise, and ethical implications. In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Jennifer Abbasi discusses two recent studies that have been described as a major step forward in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. This work shows that a new approach combining epidural electrical stimulation of the spinal cord and intensive locomotor training can be effective for the recovery of overground walking in patients with paralysis, even years after their injury. Since going to press, new findings published in October in the journal Nature describe similar improvements in mobility in patients with spinal cord injuries who received epidural electrical stimulation and physical training. It's unclear at this point which patients would benefit most from this approach, although research suggests that those with some degree of sensation below the level of injury are likely better candidates. In other biotech news, a Mitravalve clip that reduced heart failure hospitalizations and deaths, and two reports detailing rare mechanisms of fatal cancer relapse after chimeric antigen receptor T-cell or CAR-T therapy. Visit the November 13th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to the highlights from the news from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn writes that the CDC recently announced a global challenge to combat antibiotic resistance, securing commitments from more than 100 companies, professional societies, and other organizations in collaboration with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In other news from the CDC, rare acute flaccid myelitis cases have increased since 2014, affecting children with an average age of four years. So far in 2018, there have been 106 confirmed cases and 167 reports under investigation. Officials are studying confirmed cases but have not yet determined a causal agent. In the meantime, clinicians and parents should be vigilant for any signs of paralysis and limb weakness in previously healthy children, warn officials. For more updates from the CDC, visit the November 13th and 27th issues. Rebecca Volker reports that the FDA approved a new treatment for adults with relapsed or refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia or small cell lymphocytic lymphoma who have tried at least two prior therapies. The treatment duvelisib, marketed as Copictra, is an oral inhibitor of phosphonacetide 3-kinase. In other news, the FDA announced new efforts to shore up medical device cybersecurity, partnering with the Department of Homeland Security to increase information sharing and transparency around cybersecurity risks. For more updates from the FDA, visit the November 6th and 20th issues. In this month's roundup of the JAMA Forum, where experts discuss timely topics in health policy, Larry Gostin argues that global public health emergency preparedness requires proactive planning and funding, with U.S. leadership being pivotal. Dave Chakshi and Louise Cohen discuss what progress has been made in primary care 40 years after the Alma-Ata Declaration, which identified primary care as the cornerstone for attaining healthy communities and sustainable, accessible, and equitable health systems. And finally, Andrew Binman writes that curbing unanticipated or surprise medical bills related to services provided by out-of-network clinicians or facilities could serve as a tool for controlling health care costs. To read more from the JAMA Forum, visit thenewsatjama.jama.com. Next, in our monthly Global Health column, Mary-Jane Friedrich discusses the recent UN report showing that the number of people worldwide without enough to eat increased from 804 million in 2016 to almost 821 million in 2017. According to the report, climate-related natural disasters have played a major role in undermining production of major staple food crops. In many countries with such shortages in nutritious foods, overweight and obesity and undernutrition coexist. The report notes that intervention efforts should focus on supporting climate change mitigation and adaptation and disaster risk reduction. For more in global health news, visit the November 20th issue. Rita Rubin reports in our monthly health agency's update that opioid-related hospitalizations have risen among adults aged 65 years and older. The new findings from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality show that between 2010 and 2015, the rate of opioid-related hospital stays increased 34%, and the rate of opioid-related emergency department visits increased 74% among this age group. Meanwhile, rates of hospital stays, or ED visits, unrelated to opioids either declined or increased to a lesser degree. Furthermore, an estimated 1 in 5 non-institutionalized older adults filled at least one opioid prescription on average in 2015 and 2016, according to another ARC report. Both reports underscore the growing and underrecognized problems with opioid use in older populations, according to ARC director Gopal Khanna. For more news from the US health agencies, visit the November 27th issue. And last but not least, In this same issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, a PLOS medicine study found that the hypertensive nilvadipine failed to slow cognitive decline in patients with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. These findings come on the heels of more promising outcomes from a previous smaller trial. In other clinical trial news, an artificial pancreas improved glycemic control relative to sensory augmented pump therapy in patients with suboptimally controlled type 1 diabetes. And a new experimental tuberculosis vaccine provided protection against active TV in adults with latent TB infection. For more details on these and other trials, visit our clinical trials update column. That's all for this month's Medical News Highlights. Please join us next month for another episode of the JAMA Medical News Summary. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Audio production of this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. This is Faiza Sanjar, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.